There aren't many characters who are recognisable just from a silhouette, but Hercule Poirot is one of them. The beloved Belgian detective made his first appearance in The Mysterious Affair at Styles a hundred years ago, and today it seems impossible to remember a time when he wasn't a ubiquitous part of pop culture. But Agatha Christie's sleuth, for all that he is obsessed with neatness and order, isn't a straightforward character. Even in print, there are all sorts of inconsistencies in his portrayal, and at times even his creator seemed less than enthusiastic about his little grey cells. The cinematic success and beloved television adaptations are a relatively recent phenomenon. There were entire decades of the 20th century when Poirot barely appeared on screen at all. In fact, we might say that there isn't one Hercule Poirot, but many, jostling for position on page and screen. And today, we're going to meet some of them. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. Hercule Poirot came to be because of an argument that Agatha Christie had with her sister. In her autobiography, Christie described herself and Madge as connoisseurs of the detective story, saying that they had enjoyed all of Sherlock Holmes, as well as the work of Gaston Leroux and the Arsène Lupin stories. They were disputing whether it was easy or not to write a detective story. Madge thought it would be difficult, whereas Agatha thought that she might be able to do it if she tried. She didn't put pen to paper right then and there, but as she put it, the seed had been sown. She began to think about it more seriously in 1916 when she was working as a dispenser at the Red Cross Hospital in Torquay. Snatches of plot and character came to her in idle moments, and apparently thinking about it made her quite distracted at home. Those idle wanderings eventually became The Mysterious Affair at Styles, her first novel, which was published in 1920. But before it got that far, she had to make a key decision for a detective novelist. She had to create a detective. Well, she had this thing, and I think it shows how she was already able to think like an author in a very practical sense, even before she'd had anything substantial published, that when she was writing Styles, or when she was planning that she was going to write Styles, she was like, well, I need a detective, and she was very sort of pragmatic about it. This is Mark Aldridge, a historian of Agatha Christie, and the author most recently of Hercule Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World. This book is a study of all the different ways Poirot has been written and portrayed over his century of existence, and the context behind both Agatha Christie's work and that of all the other writers and actors who have had a hand in his appearances. That origin point, when Christie was pulling together her ideas for The Mysterious Affair at Styles, is crucial to Mark's book, so I'll let him explain her thought process. I need a detective. They probably have to have some sort of quirk. You know, she didn't want an inspector from Scotland Yard. So she started to think about what else you could have. So she thought about things like a schoolboy investigator or a scientist. But she settled on, yeah, a Belgian refugee. But she immediately says, and she says this in her autobiography, well, I didn't know them, but there was several were housed near Torquay or in Torquay. So what you can actually get a sense of from that is that she was like, oh, well, here's somebody who's a bit interesting, distinctive, even though I don't know much about Belgians or indeed refugees, perhaps, necessarily. But she still felt that that would be somebody who was, was very appealing. 
When Christie was giving her detective his distinguishing characteristics for this first story, she could have had no idea that she would still be working with this character five decades later. She had never had any writing published before, and indeed it would take several years of trying to even get The Mysterious Affair at Styles into print. She certainly wasn't designing Poirot with a long-running series in mind, in the way that a professional writer embarking on a new project might. As a result, Christie grew to have some regrets about how Poirot turned out. So she did say that she she regretted making him so old initially and possibly regretted making him, for her, quite annoying. <laughs> but she seemed to soften on that as, as she got older as well. But yes, I think that if she'd known that she was having a recurring detective, I suspect that, that Poirot isn't who she would have gone for. Poirot's age is the obvious issue that Christie herself, as well as all the playwrights and screenwriters who have engaged with her work, have had to grapple with. He's introduced as a retired policeman in The Mysterious Affair at Styles, which suggests that he's at least in his 60s. By the time of a book like After the Funeral in 1953, he must be at least into his 90s, which isn't ideal if you think about it for too long. And that wasn't the only thing about Poirot that Christie regretted. The things that she found quite difficult to stick with was the things that work on a superficial level and then don't if you think about them too much. Uh, and actually, most readers don't mind these things, but she would even get annoyed with things like that he had an egg-shaped head. She'd say, what is an egg-shaped head? She says, people would ask me, which way round is the egg? And I said, I don't know. I, I just said an egg-shaped head and you're stuck with that already. He limps in the first one, which goes pretty soon, so we can assume that that's a passing sort of problem. But things like, she seemed to get quite annoyed with his his tidiness, his fastidiousness, because she said herself that, did I create him because I'm wildly untidy myself? So perhaps subconsciously, she was writing someone who was a, a complete contrast to herself. And I guess that's quite fun once or twice. But then if you're writing somebody whose whole sort of attitude to life perhaps is quite different to yours in terms of, for him, you know, his neatness, his, his desire for order, uh, which really was, were not Agatha Christie type traits um, in her you know, own life, then you can understand why she would then find him quite annoying over time. Like Poirot himself, Christie's relationship to her creation didn't remain fixed. In the introduction to the Daily Mail serialisation of Appointment with Death in 1938, she wrote that There are moments when I have felt, why did I ever invent this detestable, bombastic, tiresome little creature? That line is often quoted, but doesn't really reflect all of her true feelings about her little Belgian sleuth, Mark says. If you keep reading that quote, she says, oh, but actually, I, I think he's won because actually he, he has sort of won me over by this point and, and I feel much more warmly towards him. So even by, by the late 30s, she, she didn't seem to mind him that much. But, you know, it's like with colleagues, isn't it? You can really enjoy working with a work colleague, but they can still annoy you every now and again. And I think this was the same for her, that Pora was her work colleague. And it was all right when he was bubbling in the background and when she had a good idea for him. But when suddenly you're stuck together, it's not so much fun. <laughs> Christie used another of her sleuthing characters, Ariadne Oliver, as a way of relieving her feelings about this a little. She admitted in an interview in 1956 that Ariadne, a popular detective novelist who appears in a string of novels beginning with Cards on the Table in 1936 and ending with Elephants Can Remember in 1972, contained a strong dash of Agatha Christie herself. 
Ariadne's detective character is a Finn, Sven Hirsen, who has a number of quirks that are frustrating to his creator, including vegetarianism, cold baths in winter, and a taste for raw food. She also complains of how difficult it is to create a realistic and consistent backstory for a character from a country she knows nothing about. In Ariadne's case, Finland, but for Agatha and Hercule, of course, it was Belgium. Ariadne Oliver was also useful for Agatha as a way of acknowledging or correcting her past mistakes in print. For instance, in Mrs McGinty's Dead, Ariadne admits to having got the length of a blowpipe completely wrong and receiving a lot of reader letters about that fact, which refers to a similar error that Christie made in a Poirot novel from the 1930s. Poirot might have had his annoyances for his creator, but there were circumstances in her own life that meant he had to endure. Readers loved him, and especially after the success of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd in 1926, there was an increasingly large audience for new Poirot adventures. That year also marked a turning point for Christie herself, as I've covered before on the show, which culminated in her divorce from Archie Christie and her need to support herself with her writing. She was having to then really write professionally because she needed the money, which before her her divorce she hadn't really needed, but she wanted to then obviously have her independence afterwards. And so when actually you're having to write because you've got to put Poirot in a story because he's commercial and because, you know, you need to sell these copies, sell it to magazines, that was a big thing, that they loved Poirot in this era, then you can start to feel a bit tied to him, can't you? And, and feel a bit like you're stuck in this this sort of dependence between yourselves that, that perhaps isn't something that is going to be very gratifying to you as an author, but commercially and for your readers will be very successful. Agatha Christie was a keen reader of Arthur Conan Doyle, She writes in her autobiography how instrumental Sherlock Holmes was to her own ideas about how to write a detective. And in The Sitterford Mystery, she created a brilliant homage to his 1902 novel The Hound of the Baskervilles. Conan Doyle had, of course, famously tried to kill off his detective when he got fed up of writing him, even though the public were desperate for more stories, and then had to humiliatingly revive him later on. Christie came up with a much more subtle way of relieving her feelings around her cure Poirot's end, whilst also keeping her public happy. And I'll be talking more about exactly what she did in another episode soon. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, 
about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use. And I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. Agatha Christie had a somewhat tense relationship at times with the stage and screen versions of her characters. Her clearest expression of this, again, comes via Ariadne Oliver in Mrs McGinty's Dead, when she says, You've no idea of the agony of having your characters taken and made to say things that they would never have said. 1931's Alibi was the first appearance of Hercule Poirot on film, and that came to the big screen via the theatre. The novel of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd had been adapted by Michael Morton into a stage play called Alibi and performed in 1928, and it was that version which was subsequently produced as a film. Christie had disliked Morton's early suggestion that her Belgian sleuth should become Beau Poirot, be 20 years younger, and a heartthrob to the young ladies. This didn't make it into the final version of the script, and he remained Hercule for both the play and the film version of Alibi. But he was played in the first three Poirot films by the young actor Austin Trevor, who was 33 when Alibi was made, introducing yet another confusing element to the question of how old is Hercule Poirot. That film, by the way, is now completely lost, so you can't go back and watch it. All we have to go on are the contemporary reviews and material that survives. While I was talking to Mark about all the different incarnations that Hercule Poirot had, and Agatha Christie's attitude to the adaptation of her work, it reminded me of something that Victoria Stewart said on an episode last year when she was talking about how the students on her detective fiction course at the University of Leicester first encounter murder mysteries. Let's hear what she had to say. But it's been interesting to me over the years that I've taught the module. I must be teaching it for eight or nine years by now, I think. Quite often, students haven't actually read a lot of detective fiction, but they're interested in it. And very often their reference points are TV adaptations. So Sherlock, the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock, is a reference point that a lot of people have. More recently, the Agatha Christie adaptations that have been going out around Christmas time. A lot of people have watched those. And also, and I find this quite an interesting phenomenon, that many people talk about having watched things like Murder, She Wrote or the Poirot adaptations with David Suchet when they were being looked after by their grandparents. So they have quite interesting associations with detective narratives. And they often admit this in a slightly shamefaced way that they've been watching these adaptations on television. Reruns of the various Poirot and Marple films and TV series are so common on British daytime television that the young people who come to Victoria's classes quite often had their first encounter with the characters on screen rather than in books. That is completely normal and expected these days. But it's also a relatively recent phenomenon. We're so used to seeing lots of Poirot now. And you go and look at there's such a long period where there's no Poirot whatsoever. If we are to perhaps ignore a, a single West German adaptation and possibly some unofficial ones in Russia, 
then actually between 1934 and 1965, he is not on screen at all. For 31 years, at the peak of his success, there is no real Poirot. There's like an American TV pilot. So, so there's 25 minutes shown once in like the early 1960s. But other than that, very, very, you know, there's no great, great mainstream Poirot. There's no actor who people are readily associating with him beyond those who played him on stage and screen in, in the late 20s and through to the 30s. As Mark says, there were a handful of film and TV projects through the 1930s, 40s and 50s, but they often focused on other characters from Christie's canon rather than Hercule Poirot. Poirot was always seen as the sort of crown jewels, as as the absolute sort of the thing to be protected above all else, I guess, in, in Agatha Christie. And that goes for during her lifetime and, and afterwards. And then there is this sort of slight relaxation when Merge on the Orient Express happens in, in 1974, the film. And then there seems to be a bit more relaxation. But even then, they would test the waters usually with other things. So when there were noises about television adaptations again, which had been constantly been asked about and denied, the response was, well, you can have Why Didn't They Ask Evans? <laughs> which is, you know, it doesn't have Miss Marple, doesn't have Poirot, is a very decent mystery, but is, I would say, not generally regarded as, as one of the handful of masterpieces. You know, it's not very, very top tier, I would say. And so it was slightly a safe bet that you could say, right, well, let's see how they get on with this one. And then we'll see. And then, then they sort of start to reel in the, the sort of fishing line a little bit and go, OK, you can have Tommy and Tuppence. Let's see what happens to Tommy and Tuppence. And then there's Miss Marple. And then sort of 10 years after, why didn't they ask Evans? We've got David Suchet as, as Poirot. This idea of protecting Poirot, of keeping Agatha Christie's most popular character safe from clumsy screen adaptation, is one that has its origins in the author's own caution, and which was carried on by her relatives as they took bigger roles in her literary estate. But it isn't always quite as simple as that, as Mark has discovered during his research. One of the great surprises was about Murder by the Book, which is this one-off television film-ish, it's about 50 minutes long, which was made and shown in the 80s. And that is all about Agatha Christie, played by Dame Peggy Ashcroft, meeting Poirot, played by Ian Holm, and having a discussion about, let's say, her plans for him and uh, how well Poirot is going to come out of all of these plans and, and what her ultimate plan for him might be. And my assumption had always been, well, they must have just sort of done this and not worried about, you know, the Christie estate and stuff, because it's everything that they don't like. You know, it's this they really didn't like Agatha Christie herself being depicted on screen, particularly. And Poirot was fiercely protected at this point. So imagine my surprise in learning not only through paperwork, but also speaking to, to Matthew, that actually they really liked it and they were really supportive of it. That's Matthew Pritchard, grandson of Agatha Christie. And they allowed the use of Poirot for a pound. So they didn't even like make money out of anything. They just thought it was a rather nice idea. So our, I often, and I think I'm probably guilty of this more than anybody else, of sort of really reinforcing this overprotective idea that I think some people get the impression of that being. But actually, there are so many of these exceptions that it just shows that actually, if you had the right approach, if you were doing things that happened to coincide with what 
either Agatha Christie Limited or the, the the sort of family wanted to do, then actually there was quite a lot there that that they would allow you to do. So it's just always full of surprises. Adaptations, especially popular ones like the ITV series Agatha Christie's Poirot and the more recent films, certainly help to give a character the universality that makes them instantly recognisable from even the smallest hint or phrase. But Hercule Poirot was a household name long before David Suchet started twiddling his moustaches on television. There's something intrinsic to the way Christie wrote him that makes him stick in the memory. I think that there's something immediately definable about him in a way that even Miss Marple isn't quite. But I think that because Poirot has particularly got this thing about being an outsider, that it makes him much more immediately identifiable. She, she basically describes him in the same way in dozens of books that she will describe him in precisely the same way, you know, with the the egg-shaped head and with the fine moustaches and with you know the little grey cells, all the ways that he's described. And so it almost becomes uh, a description that, that is so heavily ingrained in your head that he's right there. And I think it's a bit of a gift to a good actor to be able to bring that to the screen. But lots of characters have recognisable physical traits. The moustaches alone aren't enough. I actually would suggest that the reason he's endured is because the mysteries he's in are brilliant. And I think it's that's the big thing, is, is that Poirot's around because he solved really good cases in a really interesting way with completely satisfying uh, conclusions, for the most part, murder in Mesopotamia. There is one or two exceptions. But what we've got, really, is, is somebody who it's great to revisit and go back. I mean, there are loads of brilliant characters who are completely forgotten in detective fiction because perhaps their, their mysteries aren't that great. Poirot has got this great thing of being both a very strong and identifiable character and somebody who is in some of the greatest pieces of detective fiction ever written. That's what it comes down to, as I think it often does, in discussions of Agatha Christie's work. You can dissect her prose style and her settings, her focus on a particular class of people and set of attitudes, her over-reliance on a few stock ideas about how people lived. But you can't argue with her plots, or with most of them at least. That's what gave Hercule Poirot life a hundred years ago, and that's why he's still alive today. Poirot's bigger than any of us. Once you've created him, there's no stopping him. You, you, can't, you can't contain him. <laughs> this episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.